Hello, welcome to the Building Through Him podcast. I'm Mary Jo Parrish, and this episode comes from our conference speaker, Claire Dwyer. She is discussing St. Elizabeth of the Holy Trinity. The last talk of the day, lucky me. When you're a speaker and you're asked to you know, you do this sometimes and then they give you the schedule for the day and you look and there's two kind of dreaded time slots right after lunch or the end of the day. And so you just pray that you'll keep everybody awake. That's just my goal. Just stay awake. And I was feeling the typical self-doubt that I feel wondering, you know, is this going to be interesting and everyone's going to be tired and well-fed and just ready to go. And I was at mass and I was praying, Lord, this is this going to be enough? And do I need to get on this balance beam with my heels or get out a guitar? Like, what am I going to do? And the Lord said, just tell them what you came here to tell them. And so I just want to give you a message today, but in order to do that effectively, the messenger has to get out of the way because God has a word for you. I know it's a fact. I don't know exactly what that is, but I know that he has something for you today. And I just need to get out of the way. So will you pray with me right now that I can get out of the way and the Lord can take over? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious, loving Father, thank you for carving out a day set aside to worship you, to glorify you, to come together as your daughters, to experience the the beauty and the warmth of your face gazing upon us in love. We open our hearts to you. We ask you to speak into them a word a word of consolation and love and reassurance of your presence. Holy Spirit, you are most welcome here. We invite you to descend upon us as by a new Pentecost to fill us with the fire of your love, the light of your grace. I ask that your word would pierce our hearts today. I ask that the wisdom of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity would be manifest here today on the feast of your beloved daughter and her sister in the spirit, St. Therese. May the saints surround us, may the angels protect us, and may Our Lady guard us and fill us with the knowledge of your love. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So what did I come to speak to you about today? I came to speak to you about St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. So who here is familiar with St. Elizabeth of the Trinity? Okay, some of you, probably more than maybe five years ago. How many of you are familiar with St. Therese of Lisieux? Everybody, right? That is, doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, it's characteristic of St. Elizabeth, who very much likes to be hidden. She likes that. She wants to be the hidden saint. 
Um, and I'm going to share why that is later, but I want to start today by telling you a story about the hiddenness of St. Elizabeth, just to kind of start us off and frame this saint for you. So in April, I was giving a retreat in Ohio at a retreat center on the life and spirituality of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. I was giving six talks over two days to about 70 women, most of whom, this was just their annual silent retreat that they made at this center. They weren't there for Elizabeth of the Trinity. They were just there to make their retreat. And so when I asked them at the beginning of the treat, retreat, who here knows St. Elizabeth already Maybe like four hands out of the 70 women went up. Again, I wasn't surprised. So I began the retreat, and I was talking about her life and sharing her spirituality. About halfway through the retreat, we spent some time in the chapel saying a rosary together. And after the rosary was over, a woman tapped me on the shoulder. And this was a silent retreat. We weren't supposed to be talking. But she's like, did you know there's a first-class relic of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity in this chapel? And I said, no, I didn't. She said, come with me. And she took me up next to the altar. There was a little alcove with some relics of the saints. And sure enough, there uh, was St. Elizabeth of the Trinity right next to St. Francis de Sales. And uh, so we venerated the relic and prayed for a minute. And then before the next talk started, I just told the women, I said, look, I don't know if you knew this, but I just found out there's a first-class relic right in the chapel of this retreat center you've been coming to for years. And none of them knew it. And so after the, I said to them, well, you should go to the chapel and you should venerate the relic and visit, you know, your new friend, St. Elizabeth. And then right after that talk, the events coordinator was taking me out on a tour of the retreat grounds and he gets a call from the chaplain, the chaplain of the retreat center who had been there 20 years. And the chaplain said on the phone, I only heard half the conversation, but Basically, the chaplain said, Peter, can you tell Claire to bring her relic to the chapel? The women are asking that I bless them with it. And I, I wear a little third-class relic around my wrist, but I knew that's not what he was talking about. I said, no, Peter, the relic's in the chapel. She's there. She, it's already in the chapel. It was a very interesting one-sided conversation. Father, she says the relic's in the chapel. No, she says you have the relic. Yep, the relic's there already. She doesn't have it. After the retreat, I asked the chaplain, well, I, so from that point on, the relic had a place of honor in the front of the chapel for the rest of the weekend, and the women got to pray and venerate it, and he, the priest blessed them with it. But after the retreat, I asked him when we could talk again, I said, Father Kevin, do you mean to tell me that St. Elizabeth, her relics have been in the chapel, and you didn't know that? And he said, I don't know when they came. I don't know who brought them. I do not know how long they've been there. And I just had to laugh because, again, this is how this saint likes to show up. She just likes to be hidden. You know what Mary Jo said? Remember this morning, she said, the Holy Spirit loves to hide things for us to find. And I think that is so true of this saint. When Pope John Paul II beatified her in 1984, he presented her to the church as one who led a life hidden with Christ in God. Uh, Pope John Paul II had an incredible devotion to her. He said she was his favorite mystic. 
So anyway, that's just one small story of how Elizabeth works and kind of her behind-the-scenes personality. This is actually something Father Stephen said in the homily today. He said, you know, the saints become more themselves in heaven. It is such a heresy to think, you know, like some Eastern spiritualities teach that we die and we just kind of dissolve into oneness with the universe. We become more of ourselves. We become more different, more unique. And the saints are just one illustration of that. So she likes to be hidden even more so now that she is in heaven. And, but the church is like, okay, that's enough hiding Elizabeth. Since her canonization in 2016, things are changing. This is her time. This is why we're talking about her today. And I think St. Therese would approve, and we'll talk about that later why. She is a saint for the laity in particular. She is a Carmelite, cloistered Carmelite saint for the laity. Um, But religious orders love her too. And the more that I talk about her, the more people come to me and share their deep love for this saint, no matter who they are. There's a Benedictine priest. Actually, you know who it is. It's Father Boniface Hicks that Mary Jo was talking about today. Father Boniface is a Benedictine, and he told me she was my first spiritual girlfriend. I was like, I didn't know that was a thing, but okay. He says, I compare all the other saints to her. Like she is the gold standard for him. There is a Dominican from New York who sent me Elizabeth of the Trinity oil that he, I don't know how you make holy oil, but you put it in front of a relic and there's like ecclesial blessing and he prays with it for a certain number of days. And he said, you would not believe the stories that I hear when I anoint people with this oil. And he has a nickname for her. He calls her E3. I love that. One of the Franciscan friars of the renewal from the Bronx, I, he says, I love St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. And then the Carmelites, of course, love her. But not just religious. I get messages from new moms telling me they're naming their baby girls after her. There are widows who have reached out to me that have told me how consoled they are by her writings. I met a woman at a retreat in Phoenix this year who said she's taking the letters of Elizabeth of the Trinity to her mother when she left her mother to join the convent. And she's writing them in calligraphy and sending them to women who have miscarried or lost children. I heard from a group of women in a college dorm who were like, can we do a Zoom meeting with you and talk about Elizabeth of the Trinity? There, I heard from a Protestant pastor who had gone to Ann Arbor to plant a church and had read my book about St. Elizabeth and was thinking about converting. I said, oh, so you went to plant a church and you found the true church. Anyway, something's happening around this saint. That's the point of this. And it's no accident that devotion to her is happening right now in our church. Right now, there's a growing hunger for deeper prayer. And there's a growing realization that God wants to know us on a deeper level of intimacy. Now, I don't know if you are a longtime friend of St. Elizabeth or if you're a new acquaintance, or if you've never heard from her, heard of her. But my prayer is that you will come to know why she's found you, and she invited you here today. And I firmly believe that the saints find us. And Father used a phrase, I've never quite heard it put this way, when he said that they stalk us. 
But maybe if that's true, and maybe she's been stalking you. But let's begin, first of all, with who was St. Elizabeth of the Trinity? She was born in 1880. Her name was Elizabeth, her given name, Elizabeth Cates, close-knit, devout, military family. She was actually born in a military camp. She had one younger sister named Geet. They were really close family. Her mother's father came to live with them. And so she had these two father figures in her life. But by the time she was seven, she would lose both of them within months of each other. She was in the room when her father died suddenly at seven years old. It was very traumatic. Now, at the time, if you were a widow, your only move was to kind of downsize. You didn't have any income anymore. And so her mother had to move the girls to a smaller apartment in Dijon, France, after their father died. Now, I want you to imagine that this family moves into this new apartment in Dijon, and Elizabeth's room is on the second floor. Imagine her going to her room for the first time, walking across the room and looking out the window. And when she looked out the window, what she could see was a garden, an enclosed garden that nobody else in the world had access to except the cloistered Carmelite community around the corner. And so Elizabeth had a bird's eye view into this secret garden and the life of a Carmelite. Do you think there's any coincidences with God, right? Things happen in our life, unavoidable things, things that we would rather not have happen, and yet God is working all those things and using them for good. So her father had died. She just had this traumatic loss, but the Lord had already given her the seeds of a new spiritual family that was going to radically transform her life and transform the world. Now, Elizabeth had a really difficult personality. Look at that face. She was, to put it mildly, she was a strong-willed child. Does anybody else have one of those? I have a few. I, I recognize that look. There's actually a story. So, you was 19 months old. This is her favorite doll, Jeanette. It's kind of hard to see on these blurry pictures, but she has favorite doll, Jeanette. And one Christmas, when she was 19 months old, her mother took her to like a nativity play or a pageant at a nearby church. And they didn't have a baby Jesus for the pageant. So one of the sisters that was helping organize pulled her mother aside and said, do you think we could borrow Jeanette for this pageant. We'll dress her up like Jesus. She's never going to know. And her mom knew how attached she was to this doll. So she was kind of hesitant, but you know, they kind of did a switcheroo behind the back. They got the doll, dressed it up like Jesus. The pageant begins and there on the altar, Elizabeth sees Jeanette and she screams at the top of her voice, you wicked priest, you give me back my Jeanette. Anyway, had to be carried out, the whole deal. I mean, yes. She used to lock herself in her room and beat the door when she didn't get her way. 
Her mother kept a bag of her clothes packed by the front door that she would use to threaten her and say, you don't shape up, we're moving you to the troubled girl's home down the street. But she would use the exact same strength of will. Every virtue has a shadow side, right? But that's actually a virtue. When the grace of God enters in and we use it for good. So she used her own strength of will along with the grace of her first communion and her confirmation to overcome the worst part of her personality traits and surrender them to God. And so she became this beautiful, gentle young woman. And the presence of that convent around the corner was having its effect on her. And so she discerned a call to the Carmelites and she asked her mother if she could enter the Carmelites when she was 15 years old. Does that sound familiar? Well, remember what God did for Therese and he opened all the doors and she gets to enter early and she's only 15 years old. That's not what happened with Elizabeth. When she approached her mother, the answer came and it was not what she wanted to hear. Her mother said no. And not only no, but you're not going to talk to the Carmelites again. You're not going to go to daily mass like you used to go to. You're not going to visit with them in the parlor. All contact with that convent is now cut off. You see, her mother had different hopes for her daughter. She was a widow. She only had two girls. She wanted Elizabeth to marry. She wanted her to marry well, which she probably could have done. She was beautiful. She was accomplished. She was award-winning pianist. She had many admirers. And so her mom thought, if I keep her in the world, she'll forget about the convent. We're going to travel. We're going to see friends. We're going to see the world. And she thought if Elizabeth could just realize how lovely the world is, she'd want to stay in it. But Elizabeth's heart was broken. It was a severe suffering for her, and she entered into a period of profound darkness. She wasn't throwing tantrums anymore, but inside, she was really struggling. And she was kind of languishing and lamenting, like, Lord, I've, you called me to this. This was your idea, and now you're closing all the doors. Have you ever felt like that? Like you want something good and holy and right, and it's just not God's time. So we have some of her journals and poems during this, the years between when she was 15 and when she finally entered when she was 21. And she wrote in a poem for Pentecost when she was 18 years old. She said this, you, the Lord, you give me my vocation Oh, lead me then to this intimate interior union, to this life, holy in God, which is my desire. May my hope be in Jesus alone. And while living in the midst of the world, may I long for, may I see only him, him, my love, my divine friend. So I don't know if you caught that, but she's talking about her vocation. But she says her vocation is intimate, interior union. So her definition of vocation has shifted from being a Carmelite to being united with God, which is the ultimate vocation of every Christian. That 
is your vocation as well. And so she had realized at this point that our states in life, whether we're married or consecrated or single, widowed, our states in life are means to the end, which is union with God. They are the way we die to ourselves, to pour ourselves out in love for God and for other so that we can reach our vocation fully, which is union with God. And she asks for that, quote, while living in the midst of the world, because she was learning that she could live this recollected life close to God no matter where she was and whether or not she would ever become a nun because what she had come to desire wasn't in the end what she wanted at all, but it was what God wanted. She wanted his will, even more than she wanted to be a Carmelite. Now, here's the thing. The Lord wasn't teaching these things to Elizabeth just for Elizabeth's sake. He was teaching her these things for our sakes. I believe that the Lord allowed these years because what she was learning was actually going to become the basis for the letters that she would write from the convent to 40 laity who she corresponded during her years there. And it was also the foundation for a retreat that she would write from the convent for her sister, who was a married woman at home with two little girls. She had learned that it was possible to be a Carmelite in the world. Those were her words. And she wanted the rest of us to know that too. In my book, This Present Paradise, I'm always amazed that one of the, mo the things I hear from women about the most after they've read it is a story that I thought was kind of insignificant, but it, it must strike a nerve. And it goes like this. It was a Sunday afternoon a few years ago when my kids were younger. My youngest is 10 now, and I, I must have had at least a toddler and a baby at home at the time. And I just wanted 15 minutes of adoration. I just said to my husband, do you think we could arrange it so I can just get to the adoration chapel down the street for, you know, 15 minutes? Doesn't even have to be an hour. He said, oh, of course, sure. Well, that day was, it was just not going to happen. I desired to go and be with the Lord. And, you know, sometimes there's obstacles and those we have to overcome those, right? We have an enemy that would like nothing better than to keep us away from Jesus. But in this case, there was like a legitimate stuff with the kids and I just needed to be home. And so I didn't go. I was disappointed, but, you know, that's life. That night, I was on the floor in the kitchen, on my knees, and the kitchen was dark and dirty and I was cleaning up cereal or something. And I swear to you, it was the most real moment of my existence. I feel like I felt the words in my heart. The Lord said, you couldn't come to me, so I've come to you. And it was as if time stood still in that moment, and he was so present to me in that kitchen, like I've never felt him present. I know he's body, blood, soul, and divinity in the blessed sacrament, but I hadn't felt his presence so profoundly ever in my life as I did on my kitchen floor. Imagine how I felt when years later I would read a letter of St. Elizabeth to her sister who had just had her second baby and couldn't go to the Holy Thursday services. And she writes to her sister, since you could not go to him, I've asked him to go to you. And the point of all that is that 
God is where his will is for us in each moment. That's the only place where he's going to meet you. We, as tempted as we might be, we can't run off to a caramel and we can't run off to, you know, a cave and be a hermit or something. There are days when that is really tempting. I'm like, did I miss my vocation? Because I think I was supposed to be a hermit, you know, or a Carmelite. But he's not there. He wouldn't be there if he's calling us to the kitchen or to the pediatrician's office or the, or the carpool line or our desk. Wherever we're supposed to be in that moment, that's where he is. That's where we're going to encounter him. Not in the same way, of course, that we encounter him in the Eucharist, but in a very real way, we encounter him within his will for us. And that's what Elizabeth was realizing. So after she had learned her lesson, her mother relented and allowed her to enter when she turned 21. The Carmelites have a tradition that when they become a novice, so she would have a few months of postulancy, and then after that, she was approved by the community and she became a novice, and so they would dress in a wedding gown to symbolize that now she was a bride of Christ. And so there was the ceremony, the clothing ceremony, where she would wear the wedding dress and then be clothed in the Carmelite habit. So that's her becoming a novice. And she was given the name Sister Marie Elizabeth of the Trinity. She lived a very holy life. We know this because we have extensive correspondence from her, from the convent, primarily, like I said, to laity. She, she corresponded with a few other sisters, a few priests and seminarians, but the majority of the letters that she wrote were to lay people. On New Year's Day in 1906, she drew St. Joseph to be her patron saint. The Carmelites have the tradition of choosing a patron saint out of a hat for the year, and she drew St. Joseph, which was a very fitting because among all the hundreds of other things he's patron of, he's also patron of a happy death. And Elizabeth was already experiencing the symptoms of Addison's disease, which would be the disease she would die from 10 months later, which was excruciatingly painful. Addison's disease is a disease of the adrenal glands, which is treatable now. But at the turn of the century, they barely knew what it was, much less how to cure it. Basically, your body loses the ability to digest food and drink. So she starved to death for 10 months. She died on November 9th, 1906. Her feast day is November 8th because there was another feast day on November 9th already. She had a really beautiful, beautiful spirituality. One of the pillars of that spirituality was the powerful reality of the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. That by virtue of your baptism, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have come to make their dwelling place within you. And that we can spend our life in their company and we can develop this awareness of the presence of God deep within us. She learned that her name Elizabeth meant house of God and that delighted her. So she would spend a lot of her time meditating on that reality. Which led, which led to another one of her teachings 
that if this is true, if the Trinity dwells within us and we can know him with intimacy now, then our eternity begins now. Heaven begins now. Because heaven is union with God. That's that's what our eternity is. So while in heaven it reaches its fulfillment, we start this eternal exchange of love in this life. And that's why my book is called This Present Paradise, not because life is some idyllic, you know, beautiful paradise island or something, some kind of blissful existence. But that the object of our hope, we were just talking about hope today, it's not like some faraway reality. Like there's this life and we suffer through it and maybe if we check enough boxes and if we're good enough and if we do all the things, maybe when we die, we'll get to experience intimacy with God. It's like, okay, here's this life, die, clean break, new start. Uh Uh-uh, it's not that way. It's a continuation. It's an ever-deepening reality. It's like a veil falling away, not some kind of new existence. You're beginning your eternity now. So we expect, you know, this life with God because it was promised, promised, but we experience it now. We are experiencing what we expect in its fullness. We await only its consummation, not its commencement. It's already begun. It'll be fulfilled in heaven. So we get to enjoy our heaven now. Elizabeth would write, time is eternity begun and still in progress. And the catechism of the Catholic Church reminds us of this. The catechism said, heaven, the Father's house, is the true homeland toward which we are heading and to which already we belong. And when, it's, when the catechism is commenting on the Our Father, it teaches us that the words of the Father to the older brother, everything I have is yours already, is actually God's words to each of us. You've been baptized, you've received your inheritance, it's me, and you have it already. The Catechism says, when the church prays our Father who art in heaven, she is professing that we are the people of God already seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and hidden with Christ in God. The exact same words that Pope John Paul II would quote when he beatified her. So we don't feel like that, though. It doesn't feel every day like we've received our inheritance. We might want a little bit more of it, but we don't feel like we have it. So we have to experience it through something called faith. We experience in faith now, and sometimes, oftentimes, it's in blind faith, what we will know fully in heaven. That's why, incidentally, that's why the greatest of these is love. That's why love remains. We won't need hope. We won't need faith in heaven. We will possess the objects of our hope and faith already. We won't have to hope for anything. We won't have to have faith in anything. We'll see it. We'll possess it. We'll have it. Only love will remain. And that was the name of a retreat that Elizabeth wrote for her sister, the retreat she wrote for the mom, 
She called it Heaven in Faith. And it was the first thing that I read of St. Elizabeth's. I was in a graduate class on spiritual theology, and a required reading was this something called Heaven in Faith from this blessed, at the time, Elizabeth of the Trinity that I had never heard of. And I remember reading this retreat. I was out in the backyard, pushing the kids in the swing, trying to do two things at once, like women are so good at doing, trying to do homework and entertain the kids. And I was reading this retreat, and I had to put the book down because suddenly I realized this woman was the key to my interior life. She was the bridge between the Carmelite spirituality of St. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Therese of Lisieux that I love, St. Edith Stein, oh, love her. But it always seemed a little bit unattainable for me as a mom at home with the kids and the laundry and the dishes. It just seemed so like high in the sky, even the little waves, like too good to be true. But I realized that this woman bridged the divide, as I put it, between the convent and the carpool and the cloister and the kitchen. And it was part of her calling to teach the laity to pray. I was giving another retreat in the spring in Phoenix, and two of the Carmelites from Alhambra, California, the Carmelites of the Sacred Heart, were out um, also speaking at the retreat. And these Carmelites in their full habit met a laywoman, and we were back um, in the green room, and this other speaker, a laywoman, a mom, had never heard of Elizabeth of the Trinity. And Sister Mary Joseph said to her, so beautifully, she's like, oh, you need to know Elizabeth of the Trinity. She's one of us, but she's for you. She is for you. She's for you, laity. That was why God, you know, raised her up as a saint. And it was part of her calling to teach the laity to pray. Not just, and I don't mean to say just, but not just the vocal prayers like the rosary and all the novenas and all the things that we say that are so good and so powerful. Not even to meditate on scripture and to, you know, spend time with God thinking about, you know, his word, but to literally put oneself in the presence of God in just a posture of receptivity to give ourselves over to him and to be shaped by the weight of his gaze, even and maybe especially when he's silent. And then to carry that over into our lives and to become living acts of worship as we return love for love. Living acts of worship. By the end of her life, Elizabeth was referring to herself as laudem gloriae, which means praise of glory. She was literally signing her letters, praise of glory. She wanted to just dissolve herself and give God the glory. She saw that her deepest identity was to become praise, just like a work of art points to the artist. She wanted to just point to God. One of her letters, which is now considered one of her major works, and it's a treasure of spirituality is called Let Yourself Be Loved. And her mother superior, who was named Mother Germaine, discovered this letter after Elizabeth had died. Elizabeth had hidden it for her to find. So she didn't know it existed until after Elizabeth's death. She wrote it shortly before she died when she was in so much agony, she could barely hold a pencil. She hadn't been able to eat or drink. They would literally put little ice chips in her mouth 
because that was the only thing. Little bits of cheese, maybe she could keep that down. But anyway, she had tucked this letter away for Mother Germaine to find after Elizabeth had died. And she writes toward the end of this letter, My cherished mother, my holy priest, when you read these lines, your little praise of glory will no longer be singing on earth, but will be living in love's immense furnace, so you can believe her and listen to her as the voice of God. Cherished mother, I would have liked to tell you all that you have been for me, but the hour is so serious, so solemn, and I don't want to delay over telling you things that I think lose something when trying to explain them in words. What your child is coming to do is to reveal to you what she feels, or to be more exact, what her God, in the hours of profound recollection of unifying contact, makes her understand. In other words, in all my hours of prayer, dear mother, this is what God wants me to try to tell you. You are uncommonly loved by that love of preference that the master had here below for some and which brought them so far. He does not say to you as to Peter, do you love me more than these? Mother, listen to what he tells you. Let yourself be loved. That is without fearing that any obstacle will be a hindrance to it, for I am free to pour my love out on whom I wish. Let yourself be loved more than these. That is your vocation. And it astonishes me that as this woman is literally dying, being consumed like fire from the inside out, she would make motions that she felt like she was on fire inside. Ravaged with pain, she grabs a pencil and probably in the middle of the night and a little notebook and writes this testament of love for this woman, her mother superior. And Mother Germaine would cherish that letter for the rest of her life. Nobody would know that it existed until Mother Germaine died decades later. And they found it among her belongings. And it was so worn and so well-loved, it was evident that she had read it and reread it all her life. Now, let me give you a little context about Mother Germaine at the time. France, at the turn of the century, was a country with a very decided spirit of secularism. There was one, on one hand, there was kind of this cultural Catholicism, but the government wanted to do away with that. And so imagine being the mother superior of a convent of cloistered women who had given everything up to give their lives to God but that at any moment the government would, could come and was doing it all over the country, confiscate your property and kick you out, force you to leave. It was happening all the time. The nuns were trying to stay calm in Dijon, but they were preparing for the worst. They were giving away their most valuable religious items for people to hide in their homes we have a letter Elizabeth wrote to her mother asking for a pattern so she could sew civilian clothes in case they had to leave in a hurry and they didn't want to be dressed as nuns in that environment. They secured a second home in Belgium in case they would have to become refugees. So at this time, the safety of these sisters fell on their mother superior. It was her responsibility to take care of them. So Mother Germaine was a beautiful soul, but she was absolutely a woman who knew worry, who knew anxiety, who knew uncertainty and fear, 
who probably looked at the world and wondered what was happening to her culture, who probably thought, this is not what I signed up for, and who looked inside of herself and wondered if she was even up for the task, who wanted to please God but probably felt like she was failing miserably, and who felt deeply unworthy of his call on her life. In other words, she was just like us. And Elizabeth sees this, even in her suffering, she sees this woman with the weight of the world on her shoulders. And she goes right to the heart of the spiritual life with her. God loves you. You are beloved. And that she says to Mother Germaine and to all of us, that's actually your primary vocation, to be loved by God. And she repeats that six times in this letter. And I want you to hear those words spoken to you today. You were called into existence by a single word spoken. It had never been spoken before God said that word and you came into existence. You were called and created in love and for love. And that's not the way that we usually look at vocations. Even in our most spiritual sense, like I was raised on the Baltimore Catechism it was a little before my time, but my dad was kind of old school. I actually talk about this in the book, and he would quiz me. That famous question at the beginning of the catechism, why did God make you? And if you got the answer right, you said, God made me to know, love, and serve him in this life and be happy with him forever in the next. And that's true. And St. Therese said it too, my vocation is love. And that is our universal Christian vocation. It's prior to our state in life, which is how we love, it's prior to our feminine vocation, which is the unique way that women love. And it's prior to our personal vocation, which is the unrepeatable way that you are called to love. But before all of those things, your vocation is to be loved by God. Isn't that freeing? In a sense, if we allow God to love us, then we've already done the most foundational, important thing in our life. And yet, it's not that easy. Because we like to protect ourselves. God's love sometimes hurts in that purifying way. And we're fallen and we're broken. And so we... We say, okay, that's enough. Enough love. I got it. We're good, right? Shame and fear and our own limitations and our wounds. And we tend to like protect ourselves and bury ourselves. And if we're honest, there are parts of us that are still buried. Little parts of us that we would like to kind of keep in their closets. But the Lord wants us to let them out so that his countenance can shine on them and he can collect them back into the Father's house right here. He wants us to be whole and integrated and entirely ourselves. And in order to do that, we have to show him all of ourselves that he can love. It's simple, but it's not easy. When we say, let yourself be loved by God, it's not that easy. But Elizabeth knew how important it was. You know, Jesus, uh, there was a, the beginning of my book, I quote Elizabeth talking to her sister and she's saying, just put all your spiritual reading aside. A dangerous thing to say in the beginning of a book, but 
Just put all your spiritual reading aside, Geet, and just look at the crucifix. That's all you need. Just look at the crucifix. And when we look at the crucifix, we see a God who thirsts not for water, but for your, for you to let him love you. And Elizabeth wants that for you, and she wants it so badly that she would like to disappear and hide so that you can just see Jesus, the one who longs for intimacy with you right here in this place where he dwells. Now, St. Elizabeth was actually one of the first devotees of St. Therese. She was the, the founding member of the fan club, you could say. They, were, they lived roughly the same time. Therese died a few years before Elizabeth entered the convent. And the Carmelite convents in France were the first ones to receive the story of a soul. So when Elizabeth was friends with the, the Carmelites and considering her vocation, they gave her story of a soul. So she would have been one of the first women in the world to ever read it. And she immediately fell in love, of course, with this beautiful little Carmelite saint. And much of Elizabeth's spirituality reflects the love and the merciful love of God that St. Therese would talk about. But the sisters in the convent, being fans of St. Therese and loving St. Therese, when Elizabeth was dying, they gathered around her and they said, okay, are you going to be like St. Therese when you die? Are you going to come down and spend your heaven on earth doing good? And Elizabeth said, no, nope. I'm going to shoot like a rocket into the bosom of the Trinity. She said something else too, though, in a letter. She said when she knew she was dying, she told a friend, if God allowed, she would, quote, draw souls by helping them go out of themselves and cling to God in a holy, simple, and loving movement and keep them in this great silence within that will allow God to communicate himself to them and transform them into himself. So she's basically saying, I'm going to help souls find God in their interior silence. I believe... There was a reason that St. Elizabeth wasn't canonized until 2016. See, so I think I have a picture of her. This is the tapestry that hung in front of St. Peter's Basilica when she was canonized by Pope Francis in 2016. So contrast for a moment St. Therese and St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Both Carmelites in France, same time, similar spirituality. St. Therese dies in 1889, beatified in 1923, canonized in record time in 1925. Now, the canonization process has changed and things move along a little faster. At the time, that was absolutely unprecedented. Her spirituality of humility and spiritual childhood spread like wildfire. Well, the church needed her. The church needed her refreshing way of confidence and love at the very moment the world was about to be plunged into two world wars. And modernism and all the things that come with it were rearing their heads big time. But Elizabeth stayed hidden. Elizabeth stayed hidden as Vatican II 
articulated the very spirituality that she had written about decades before. And Vatican II would use words like universal call to holiness, sanctification of the laity. Do those things sound familiar? But at the time, that was kind of new to the church. But yet this little Carmelite had been teaching basically the same thing from the convent years before. She stayed hidden during all the years of confusion after Vatican II. She stayed hidden during the dawn of the charismatic renewal and the beginnings of what Pope John Paul II would call a new springtime and a new evangelization in so many ways around the church that the faithful, even in the midst of the cultural darkness, the faithful were beginning to wake up to the richness of the faith. And then when we, the church, and individually began to experience a deepening call to interior silence and a longing for intimacy with the Lord and a desire for a deeper prayer life. And I suspect one of the reasons you're here is because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I think that's possibly why, very probably why the Lord said, okay, Elizabeth, come out, come out, wherever you are. Enough hiding in the bosom of the Trinity Come out and tell them what it is your mission to tell them. Tell them that I am waiting in the depths of their souls. That I am waiting and I am longing for them. Show them the way into their own hearts. Usher in a new age of the Holy Spirit. A quiet an unseen but earth-shattering revolution of interior silence. You see, she's a prophet of prayer. She's been called a prophet of prayer, and she's a sage of silence in an age of noise. She leads us within ourselves to a place that is too sacred for words, much less the auditory violence of our age. Don't you feel it sometimes? Like the constant noise, it's like a violence against us. It's no accident that you're here today. I believe, I totally believe that the Lord has called you here today to be a part of that revolution. Because he wants to know that it begins inside of you. The renewal of the church that we pray for the, the increase in vocations, the renewal of our diocese, of our parishes, it begins here. He wants that revolution to begin inside of you. So go to him there, meet him there. And when you realize in your prayer that you are a little bit closer to God, recognize that that's Elizabeth's fingerprints on your spiritual life and understand that she's visited you too. Normally, I would end there, but I want to just say one more thing because we're about to move into adoration, and I think this is significant, and I just want to give you something to meditate on as you adore the Lord today. So she's a prophet of prayer. She's a prophet of this, the, holy, the universal call to holiness, the sanctification of the laity, But true to her name, she was also raised up by God to increase an awareness 
of the radical, profound, indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, separate persons, one God. And she knew that the key to that was the Eucharist. Body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, but where Jesus is, who else is there? The Father and the Holy Spirit. The Lord was doing something in the church. He was raising up this awareness of the Trinity and the fact that when we adore Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, we put ourselves before the Godhead in his entirety. About 10 years after Elizabeth died, during her first apparition to the children at Fatima on May 13, 1917, Mary bathed the children in light, and they were moved by an interior impulse that was communicated to them. So they're, they're with Our Lady, and they have this interior impulse to pray these words. O most holy trinity, I adore you. My God, my God, I love you in the most blessed sacrament. And our adoration of God as we come before him in the blessed sacrament, I believe that that can be the starting point to a new relationship of love with the Holy Trinity dwelling within you. So I invite you as you adore the Lord in the blessed sacrament to realize that before you stands Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same God that dwells within you from the moment you were baptized has been there waiting for you and that you can visit him not exactly the same way as you could visit the Blessed Sacrament, but that he's there with you day and night. And Elizabeth would want you to know that. So St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, pray for us. God bless you all. Thank you so much. If you would like more information about Kingdom Builders or would like to know how to bring this apostolate to your parish, please go to our website at buildingthroughhim.com and click Build With Us. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.